Here's everything you might have missed in Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 5. Once again, it is Wands Day, my dudes, and we're back with a breakdown of Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 5, including all the Easter eggs and hidden details that you might have missed. If you prefer to read all about it, we've got you covered over on Nerdist.com, but to talk about this episode in detail, guess what? we got to spoil what happens. So if you haven't seen it yet and don't want to know about Dexter Jetster's tragic Tauntaun accident, leave now before it's too late. Are you ready? Are you? Okay, let's get into it, shall we? The penultimate episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi takes place primarily in two locations. The path space on Jabim in the present, and the Jedi Temple on Coruscant in the past. As these storylines intersect, we get plenty of action, intrigue, and confirmations of theories about some of the major characters. The episode begins with a flashback to Anakin dueling Obi-Wan Kenobi at the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. Based on Anakin's hairstyle and both intact flesh hands, this likely takes place prior to the events of Attack of the Clones. Sorry, Dooku, not today! These are happier days compared to their duel on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith, and when Vader turned him into Charcoal Biwan in Episode 3 of this show. And finally, it gives us the dose of Hayden Christensen that we've been waiting for this entire time. Oh, there you are. Now, their duel slowly unfolds over the course of this episode as we see Obi-Wan teaching his Padawan some important lessons about aggression, patience, single-minded focus on victory, and why you don't always need a weapon to win a duel. The lessons are mirrored throughout the episode as various plot points unfold, and we see that Vader was perhaps a better student than Obi-Wan gave him credit for. It also gives a deeper meaning to Vader's line to Obi-Wan on the Death Star in A New Hope. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. In the present, Vader stands on the bridge of the Devastator, the iconic Star Destroyer that serves as his flagship. It's the first Imperial ship that we see in A New Hope and probably leads the Empire for most force-choking per capita. For leading him to Obi-Wan, Vader rewards Reva with the title of Grand Inquisitor that she was promised previously. Back on Jabim, things are pretty jableek as Roken tries to get all of these refugees ready to evacuate off-world. In the crowd, we see some familiar faces like my perfect angel Ned B, Haja Estri, who's now a wanted man after standing up to Reva in episode 2, and Corin, perhaps Corin Horn, the kid that Haja helped smuggle off Dayu. He might be the Force-sensitive son of Valhorn, a Jedi that was teased in the Path's hideout on Balnab in episode 3. We also see a fair bit of a droid that kind of looks like R2-D2's head was glued onto a Dalek's body, and I'm not sure what his deal is, but I'm a big fan. Anyway, Obi-Wan finds another wall full of names and messages inscribed in Oribesh, including the Jedi Order symbol. On the wall, we see the name Roganda Ismarn, which also appeared in Episode 3. She was a Jedi who first appeared in the 1995 novel Children of the Jedi. There's also Corwin Shelvey, a Jedi who first appeared in the Galaxy Guide 9 Fragments from the Rim, a 1993 supplement for Star Wars The Role-Playing Game. He apparently survived Order 66 and went on to join the Rebel Alliance. There's also the word Tiberius, which I'm not entirely sure, but could be Tiberius Anderlock, a Jedi pilot from the Star Wars Galaxies video game. There's also Drake Logan, a Jedi that first appeared in the StarWars.com webcomics Reversal of Fortune and Evasive Action, and the name Jin Atlas, a Jedi Master who first appeared in the 2009 novel The Clone Wars No Prisoners. And finally, there's also a bunch of phrases like There is no death and May the Force be with you. Sadly, Quinlan Voss does not make an appearance here, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that he's the one who wrote The Light Will Fade but is never forgotten. So as far as I'm concerned, Quinwatch is still officially in effect. Well, that's your opinion, man. 
Obi-Wan then looks wistfully at the pile of discarded lightsabers and robes belonging to fallen Jedi. But sadly, we still don't get a Qui-Gon Jinn appearance either. So I guess we have to pin our hopes of a Jinn watch on the finale. It's too late. It's... no. While our hero's attempts to escape were thwarted by a malfunctioning hyperdrive in Empire Strikes Back, here it's the result of Lola sabotaging the hangar doors. And as we see, this was Vader's master plan all along. He wanted to trap the refugees and Obi-Wan inside this base so the Empire can ferret them out. But these refugees aren't going down without a fight. They seal up the base and prepare for battle. Now, if you look carefully, you can also spot a brief cameo appearance by the High Republic show host, Christina Ariel, in the crowd. While Reva and her army of purge troopers and stormtroopers start shelling the door with a heavy gun turret, Obi-Wan puts his faith in Leia, who crawls inside the vent to try and fix the hangar doors. I'm going to need a ladder. Get her the ladder. Get her a ladder. Can someone get her a damn ladder? Honestly though, what is it about Star Wars and sending small kids into confined areas to perform complex engineering work? <laughs> Obi-Wan then watches one of the least secure holographic messages of all time from Bail Organa. Bail is worried that Vader might have learned of the children and says he'll head to Tatooine to look after Luke if Obi-Wan doesn't contact him soon. He must have been very worried because his complete lack of discretion in this message basically serves Luke up on a silver platter by the episode's end. Tala then tells Obi-Wan how exactly she became a double agent while working on the planet Garel. This planet in the Lothal sector appeared many times on Star Wars Rebels and was home to crime syndicates like the Black Sun and Broken Horn. It was also where Ahsoka recruited Kanan Jarrus and Ezra Bridger to help investigate Project Harvester, the Empire's program of kidnapping Force-sensitive children. Not knowing who the Inquisitors were, Tala reveals that she handed over four Force-sensitive families to the Inquisitors as part of that program. And as a result, 14 people died, including six kids. Now she tries to make amends by helping rescue Force-sensitive people, notching her holster for each person that she saves. Next, armed with a heavy bowcaster that would make Chewie proud, Roken prepares to hold the line while Obi-Wan goes to negotiate with Reva. During his conversation with the new Grand Inquisitor, Obi-Wan deduces that not only was she one of the younglings present on the night of Order 66, but she's playing the long con. She's trying to assassinate Vader for what he did. As established by both the Clone Wars episode Children of the Force and Obi-Wan episode 3, Force-sensitive kids were taken to the Jedi Temple at a very young age. So when Reva says that Anakin slaughtered the only family she knew, she really meant it. But Reva isn't afraid to mince words with Obi-Wan either. She correctly takes him to task by asking, where were you when he was killing my friends? And while the answer is dealing with General Grievous on Utapau, it's a question that I'm sure Obi-Wan asks himself every night. What follows is a brutal battle as Reva and the Imperial forces charge into the tunnels. My sweet boy Ned B turns into Dead B while trying to hold off the stormtroopers, and Tala makes the ultimate sacrifice. Using a thermal detonator, she seals off the tunnel trying to blow the enemy to smithereens. Now this may be a bit of a reach, but the framing of this scene felt like a tribute to Vasquez and Gorman's last stand in Aliens. Realizing he's beaten, Obi-Wan voluntarily surrenders, perhaps in a bid to play into Vader's need for victory. As we see, Obi-Wan is using Reva's desire for revenge to get her on his side. Because when you don't have a weapon, you find other ways to fight. In this case, pointing a loaded gun at your old apprentice in the form of a revenge-obsessed dark side acolyte. And as we know from A New Hope, Obi-Wan is well-versed in alternatives to fighting. <laughs>
Of course, Riva doesn't know the lessons that Anakin learned during that duel. Her need for victory and to prove herself will ultimately be her undoing. But before that, though, we see Leia remove a restraining bolt from Lola, which Riva was using to enforce its evil programming. What follows is one of the single coolest displays of power by Darth Vader in any Star Wars story I've ever seen. He begins by using the force to prevent a ship from taking off and then rending it asunder piece by piece. It calls to mind Starkiller stopping the Star Destroyer in the Force Unleashed video game. However, as it turns out, the rule of two applies here. Mm, always two there are. That was a decoy ship. The one full of refugees flies away without issue, giving Reva a chance to try and kill Vader once and for all. <laughs> Now, as you likely guessed as someone who's presumably seen a Star War or two, it doesn't go so well for Reva. While she goes from a single-bladed lightsaber to a double-bladed lightsaber, then that spinning pinwheel of doom from Rebels in episode two of this show, Vader shows just how much of his duel with Obi-Wan on Coruscant he actually internalized. Using just the force, he deflects and stops each of her attacks, systematically disarming her. Luckily for Riva, he didn't disarm her permanently, opting to just run her through with a lightsaber rather than cut off her limbs like certain sons of his that I could name. <laughs> the battle itself ends with a gruesome POV shot that mirrors Riva's experience on the night of Order 66 as Anakin stalked towards her. And in that moment, the jig is well and truly up. Vader reveals that he knew exactly who Reva was the entire time. Did you really believe I did not see it, youngling? Not only that, but as many of you Rebels fans suspected, the Grand Inquisitor is significantly less dead than we were led to believe after he got shanked by Reva on Dayu. Chewing the scenery, Rupert Friend leaves Reva dying on the ground as he reclaims his position of Grand Inquisitor. Well, maybe not dying, but she's definitely injured. As the episode comes to a close, Obi-Wan has a bad feeling about this. The this in question is Reva finding the damaged communicator that Haja Estri dropped while trying to escape Jabim. And although garbled, Reva can clearly make out Bale's message hinting at Luke on Tatooine. While Obi-Wan quotes every video game guard ever, we see young Luke peacefully slumbering on Tatooine for now. Something tells me that Reva will focus her anger on Vader's next of kin rather than the man himself. And that means Obi-Wan will need to hightail it back to this desert planet to protect the other Skywalker child now that Leia is safe and sound. Fortunately though for Reva, Tatooine is apparently the leading source of robotic stomachs in the galaxy far, far away as we learned on the Book of Boba Fett. Anyway folks, there you have it. That is everything we spotted in Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 5. With just one episode to go, we're so excited about what we have to look forward to next week. With that said, we'll have plenty of other deep dives into the galaxy far, far away on Nerdist for you in the meantime. For now, though, tell us, what did you think of this episode? Did you spot anything that we missed? I'm sure it's nothing. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com. 